Children's Church. I'm a little vertically challenged, so I like being up here a little bit closer to y'all. <laughs> For those that don't know me, I'm Dale, Rachel's dad. <laughs> it's, uh, I look back at my records, it's been about 10 years we've been doing this now, coming at this time of the year when they have the men's retreat. And so for those of you who don't know, uh, Paul and Rachel were here a lot of years, I think 10 plus years, 11 years, and uh, we miss them. That's hard. <laughs> those of you who are parents and your kids move away, you know how hard it is. And thank the Lord for Skype. We get to see them every once in a while on the computer and have uh, those conversations. But uh, yes, they're doing well. They are adapting. Jimmy's still having a hard time. So if you read Rachel's page, you know that Jimmy's still throwing his little fits. And uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, for those who don't know me, actually my full-time work is at North Central Behavioral Health Systems. I'm a mental health counselor, and I work with uh, youth in the detention centers. Uh, I go to schools that are behavioral schools. I work with kids that are those that you don't want in your normal classrooms. <laughs> so they go to their uh, special schools, and I work with those kids. Uh, plus I work with adults in the mental health field. So that's my full-time work. I've also been a pastor in the past, and uh, this is the new chapter in my life. Back in the olden days, when I attended seminary in Portland, Oregon, I also worked with Youth for Christ part-time. One summer, our Youth for Christ team took 12 juveniles from the detention center uh, there in Portland, Oregon, backpacking and mountain climbing. Some of us who had never been to the top of Mount Hood uh, had a few choices. Uh, we could... Uh, wander around the mountain for a while, try to figure out how to make it up to the top. Uh, or we could get a map and see if we could find our way to the top by using a map. Or we could ask a guide to help us. And uh, guess what? We asked the guide. <laughs> yeah, We were not uh, too uh, well-versed in how to get to the top. So the guide, who had already been to the top, led us to the top of Mount Hood. And all 12 guys, plus all of the uh, counselors, made it to the top that year. It was a great experience. In a similar way, when it comes to our spiritual journey, we also have some choices. We could wander around for a while and try to figure out how to do this spiritual journey that we're on. Uh, we could read a few books, and that might help a little bit. Or we could ask help from a guide, somebody who has been there before us. Rick Warren is like a mountain guide. He has led his church to the top of, like, Revival Mountain. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, he offers to show the steps that he and his church have found helpful in their spiritual journey. In it, he asks some very probing questions, like, why are you alive? <laughs> Does your life matter? What is your purpose Do you have a reason for existing? Hmm. What on earth are you here for? Well, I'd like to consider his questions in today's message. You are designed for worship. You are designed to worship God. You were created and planned for God's pleasure. That is to worship him. Today's message I've entitled The Heart and the Art of Worship. And you can take that notes page out because you may need it in a little bit. Since some of the men are gone today, I thought I'd start out with a little story. You ladies might enjoy this. A woman was out golfing one day, and she hit her ball out into the woods. When she went to the woods to look for it, she found a frog in a trap. 
The frog said to her, if... <laughs> yeah, she, the frog speaking, yeah. Okay, if, if you release me from this trap, I will grant you three wishes. The woman freed the frog, and the frog said, thank you, but I, I failed to mention that there is a condition for your wishes. Whatever you wish for, your husband will get ten times. Hmm. Well, the woman said, that's okay. So for her first wish, she wanted to be the most beautiful woman in the world. The frog warned her, you do realize that this wish will also make your husband the most handsome man in the world. And the other women will, of course, you know, kind of chase him a little bit. Oh, the woman replied, that's all right, that's all right, because I'll be the most beautiful woman and he'll have eyes only for me. So, kazam, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. For her second wish, she wanted to be the richest woman in the world. Well, the frog said, now, wait a minute, you realize that that will make your husband the richest man in the world and ten times richer than you. Well, the woman said, that's okay, because what's mine is his, what's his is mine. So, kazam, she was the richest woman in the world. Then the frog inquired, well, what about your third wish? She answered, I'd like a mild heart attack. <laughs> the moral of the story, women are clever. Don't mess with them. <laughs> okay, for the female listeners, now you have to stop listening right now. That's the end of the story for you. For men, you can keep listening. The man had a heart attack, but it was ten times milder than his wife. Ooh, sorry about that. I better, I better pray before I get myself in hotter water. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We bow before you now. We come to your written word. We submit to the authority of your inspired truth. We confess our allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, and to your purposes for our lives. Lord, you know we can be stubborn people. You are all too familiar with our sinful ways. You know how we resist the work of your Spirit and how we've been wandering away from you this past week. You know our frame. We are made of dust and we are weak. Even though we intend to obey, we forget. We get distracted. We give in to temptations and we fail. So we humbly ask your forgiveness. Please do a work within us today. Open the eyes of our hearts. Prepare our minds to receive your truth. Cause us to be quick to hear, honest to confess, and willing to change. Please give us courage to follow through with our commitments, which we will make here today. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles again and turn with me to John chapter 4. And you may also want to turn back to Psalm 95. We'll be looking at that in just a few moments. As we start, I want you to imagine that you're walking down a mall here in America. And you ask the question to random people as uh, they are walking throughout the mall. You ask them, what is worship? Well, answers may vary quite widely, as you, some may say, well, it's going to church. And others would say, no, it's saying prayers, or singing songs or hymns. Or some would say it's like rituals, like lighting candles or burning incense. Some would say it's like leaning on your, or kneeling on your prayer shawl and, and facing a certain direction. Some may say it's like baptism or confession or taking communion. There's all different 
types of answers that you might get. Most people think of worship as something that you, you do with other people. And that is true. Uh, you can worship with other people, but that is not exclusively worship. Okay? You can worship God alone as well. As we seek to define and describe true biblical worship, I would also like us to consider, first of all, what worship is not. Okay? So there's a few places where you can jot down a couple of notes here if you want to. Worship is not about me. It's about God. Worship is for God. Now, let's remember, worship is not a self-help group. It's not a therapy group. Uh, we are not here to prop up our self-esteem. We're not here to talk about all of the horrible sins or, or bad things that happened to us in our past. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, aren't you doing good today? No, we're, we're not here for us primarily. Worship is about God, not about us. We're not here to, to just tell other people how we've messed up in life, although that may come out. We're not here just to get all charged up so we can go back out in the world, although we hope that you do feel invigorated and enlivened by coming here. Worship is not about fulfilling our dreams, getting a blessing, or getting healed, or becoming wealthy. We hope that there are times when you leave here and you do feel much better, or that you do have a better self-image, or perhaps even get physically healed, which are all good things that could happen while you're here. But true biblical worship is not about us at all. Worship is about God. Not about us. Perhaps you remember the song several years ago. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. All about you. If our worship is about God, there may be times we actually leave here and feel worse. Because God has convicted us of things that we're doing wrong. We realize how rotten we are and that we've got to make changes. If our worship is about God, we want to... We want to get all of our attention to him while we're here. Worship is not about the people that are up front here. No, the worship is about this person up there watching us. He is our audience. We are here for him. Secondly, worship is not primarily a lecture. Most evangelical churches give a significant portion of time to the pastor's sermon, which is good. It's good to hear the word of God. We need to learn. However, something more than head knowledge needs to take place while you're here. Worship is not simply a classroom, although we do come to learn. Ultimately, it's not what I get that counts. It's what I give to God. Worship is about giving back to God. I give him my attention. So whether the sermon is good or poor... It should not affect your worship of God. Thirdly, worship is not primarily an evangelistic service. Now, worship is an activity for those who already know Christ. Worship is for those people who have accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Now, if you've come here as a, as a, as a Christian, your worship is showing gratitude to your Redeemer, your Savior, for giving you His forgiveness for making that payment for your sins. The church gathers for worship and then scatters for evangelism. Now, 
we are aware that sometimes we do have those who come into our worship who are not yet saved. And so it is good for us, because God brings seekers to our time of worship, to offer the invitation to come into the family of God. And, and if you're here and you have not yet received Christ as your Savior, we're glad you're here. We hope that you will invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. Because we are here to give him our thanks and praise. Since God is drawing them, it is an excellent idea from time to time to give them that opportunity to re respond to his invitation. However, evangelism is focused on people that are not yet saved. Worship is for those who are saved to focus on God, to express their love, their praise, and adoration to the one who created them and redeemed them from a life of sin. Fourthly, worship is not primarily an entertainment. Worship is not for your entertainment. You are not sitting out here, you know that program where they have those X's, you know, uh, what's it called? Help me out here. They have the X and they, you know, they perform. Yeah, yeah, okay. So these people are not performing up there. You don't have an X in front of you and say, eh, you know, out of here. No, that's not what this is about. We're not here to entertain you. Now, we, we hope you're not bored, but that's not the primary reason that you're here. The, this is not a performance for you to judge. Now, I believe one of the greatest hindrances to genuine biblical worship in American churches today is we come with this, this attitude of entertainment. Americans have this me mentality like, okay, nothing in it for me, so, yeah, it was kind of, uh. I didn't get anything out of that. Worship was boring. Well, guess what? If it's boring, it's boring because you made it boring. Because you're here not to get entertained or even instructed by these people. You are here to give to God. If you're bored, well, maybe it's your relationship with God that's the problem. Now, we hope that worship is interesting. We hope it's not boring. We, we can laugh. We can enjoy ourselves. We can be delighted with what happens here. But if we come with the attitude that we're here as a critic about the people and what they're doing up front, if I'm sitting out there evaluating the performance of the people up here, then I've come with the wrong attitude. Entertainment mentality is man-centered, not God-centered worship. So if worship is not a self-help group, if it's not a gospel pep rally, if it's not a lecture, if it's not an evangelistic outreach or a time to be entertained, what is worship? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> That's what we're here to learn about today. I, I hope that you'll get some very, very good answers. And we're going to jump back to John chapter 4 because... In this passage, these brief verses, we see the word worship appears multiple times. It's interesting that nowhere else, nowhere in the Bible do we find a brief definition of worship. Yet from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, it's all throughout the book. But there's no one just succinct little uh, definition. So how do we define worship? Back to John chapter 4. I'm going to jump in again since you've just heard it read. I'm going to jump in at verse 13. Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty, won't get thirsty, and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, 
you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is, have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, <laughs> interesting that she now wants to change the subject. Let's get off the topic of, of men and marriage. Oh, that's too embarrassing. Okay, so she changes the subject. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Obviously, he knows all about me, so he knows me. Okay, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so there it's occurred twice, worshipped and worshipped. Jesus declared, note, you could count them as you go through here, the number of times the word worship occurs. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, there is a, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship, you, um, sorry, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know what the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am here, am he. All right, so in this passage, Jesus unveils what the Bible talks about, true biblical worship. In seminary, I had a professor named Ron Allen. He wrote on this passage, among the conversations of our Lord on, in his earthly ministry, one of the most unexpected and profound was the encounter he had with the much-married <laughs> Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in Sychar, recorded here in John. When the woman diverted the conversation from her own troubled domestic life, to the theology of worship, she began to give Jesus the opportunity to express his theology of worship. She asked the question about the art or the form of worship. Jesus responded with the issue, which is the heart. She asked Jesus about where to worship. Jesus responded with, what relates to the heart, the real issue of worship. So the art is all the external, the building, the lights, the music, the, you know, all this is external. The real issue of worship is right here. It's in the heart. So Jesus cuts right to the, to the heart of the issue. The heart of worship is actually what happens in the, on the inside of a person. Whether you're here in this building or out in nature or wherever you are, it's your heart that makes a difference. Kent Hughes, senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, has written that the Father seeks worshipers is unparalleled nowhere else in the entire corpus of Holy Scripture. Do we read God seeking anything else from the, from the child of God? God doesn't want anything else except our worship. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He responded to Satan's temptation with a quote in Deuteronomy 6. He said, Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's a heart issue. 
Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So what is worship? Worship is difficult to describe in one short phrase. I'm going to give you several short phrases from other mountain guides that have gone before us that might help you to try to figure out what is this idea, this concept, this practice of worship. Several have gone before us, giving us things to ponder. Worship is God-centered, not man-centered. Worship is communion with God. Worship is a heart response to the living God that leads to godly action. Worship is a total lifestyle lived in allegiance to God. Worship is being caught up with the wonder of God's character and his creation. By the way, I have this list. If some of you would like a copy of it, I'll give it to you after the service. Worship is being captured by God's love. Worship is praising God and declaring the worth of his character and attributes. Worship is pondering the infinite excellency of God's nature. Worship is when your personal, intimate relationship with Christ becomes fully alive. Worship is when you know you are in the presence of God. Worship is when you experience deep reverence and submission to God. Worship is communicating with God my acceptance of his lordship over my whole life. Worship is listening attentively, expectantly, and obediently to his voice coming through his word. Worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. Worship is to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. Worship is to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God. Okay, now on your paper, grab a pen, pencil, just one moment. I'd like you to write, you've heard several ideas. Complete this sentence. Worship to me is... Go ahead, take 30 seconds, grab a pen or pencil. Worship to me is... How would you complete that sentence? We do it every week. Do we know what we're doing? You come here frequently. Worship to me is... Now, after the service, I, I challenge you. Find somebody else here in the room and say, what do you say to that question? How do you think of worship? And share it with someone else. But let's get practical. What does worshiping mean in everyday life. Now, there's some space here for you to do some writing, but we need to go back to Psalm 95 now. Psalm 95. Turn in your Bibles back there to Psalm 95. We're going to go to the Psalter, the, the list of 150 hymns or songs that the Hebrew people used in their worship of God. It tells us what God expects of his people when they gather for worship. Verses 1 through 5 is worship, is joyful celebration. Verses 6 and 7, worship is reverent homage. Verses 8 through 11, worship is willing obedience. So that's where we're headed for the next part of the, the message if you happen to want to take a nap. 
Psalm 95. Begin reading at verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving let ex- let, uh, and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Now, here's where we get into what the psalmist wants us to experience when we gather, especially with other people. You can do it alone, but it's actually more exciting when you do it with other people. For some of us, these words where it says, shout and sing and be exuberant and joyful, these are like a foreign language when you come to church. You know, it just doesn't connect. Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. For some of us, that's incongruent. We don't come to work to, to church to shout. In some churches, the only shouting happens is the, in the business meetings. <laughs> Been there. Okay. So God's word says for us as believers that we can shout in adoration. Praise him. Now, I, some of, I know some of you are sitting here in your pew and you're saying, that's just not me. That's just not my personality. Well, I, I would guess there might be a couple of uh, football fanatics in this congregation. <laughs> You know, the, the football fanatic, don't you? He or she is that person who eats, sleeps, and talks football all the time. On Sunday, he can hardly wait for that big, big game to start. That's because all week long, he's been reviewing the statistics from the previous week. He knows the scores of all of his favorite teams. He knows their ratings and their division. He knows who's injured and who's healthy. He's got his fantasy team all mapped out and up to date. By Thursday, he's got his game plan together. He's got his strategy. He's got his uh, stocking up for chips and pop and pizza. He's got to catch a few games on Saturday to figure out who's going to be in the college uh, games and who's going to be in the prospect for the draft in the years to come. And he's calling up his buddies to make sure that they know what time to come over to his house for the game. So when Sunday rolls around, he's all hyped up. Boy, he's so excited the stove could catch on fire and he wouldn't know it. The kids could be screaming their heads off and he's oblivious. There could be the, a flood in the basement and he's got no idea what's going on because he is into this game. So his wife walks in and he, she sees four guys just going bananas. And he says, did you see that? And she says, what? Well, the wide receiver just caught a pass and he tied up the game. It's fourth period and our team could now win. She said, no, I didn't see it. She said, what are you, what are you so worked up about? He says, because, did you see it? Wouldn't it be great if we could be there? Where, she asked. Well, there, where, at the game, at the stadium. No. <laughs> What's the difference? Here's the football fanatic, all excited about this game, can't hardly uh, wait to have it happen, and here's his wife, the uninvolved Observer. Application. In the person of God, we have someone, something to be more excited about than any game that has ever been played or ever will be played. You see, that that football fanatic has engaged his whole self into that game. We ought to engage our whole self in worshiping God. We need more God fanatics 
who will use their minds to get to know the greatness of God and his character and majesty. We need to engage our emotions and openly express our exuberance for our, salva our salvation and his forgiveness. We need to use our will to surrender to his lordship and his purposes for our lives. By the way, could that football fanatic have enjoyed the game by himself? Sure. Yeah, he could, he, could, uh, he could sit there in his living room and watch it by himself, still enjoy it. But how much more excitement and enthusiasm when you're gathered with 100,000, 200,000 people in a stadium, right? And they're all yelling at the top of their voices, cheering on their favorite team. So it is with us. When we gather here for worship, we gather with other believers who ought to be excited about the same God who has done some great things in their lives. Well, we can worship alone. There's nothing wrong with you going out in nature, finding a trail, going out there all by yourself. That's fine. There's room for that. But guess what? When you're gathered here with other believers and they're excited about your God and you're excited about God, what kind of enthusiasm can that, that generate? All week long, that football fanatic has been preoccupied with his love of the game. Guess what? If all week long you are preoccupied with a God who loves you so much that he gave his son so that you could be his child, when you gather together, you are ready to say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for loving me that much. Worship becomes a spontaneous outpouring of that inner sense of adoration and awe. Worship is the loud and joyous expression of our thanksgiving to God for all he has done and will do in our lives. We become so focused on him that we are almost oblivious to everything else going on around us. We become so God conscious that we are no longer self conscious. We freely, publicly, verbally express our love for him in words and actions. The psalmist tells us to boast in him. Take that enthusiasm that is really actually a part of our human nature and bring it to worship with you. For Yahweh is a great God, the great king above all gods. He is worthy of your best singing. He is worthy of your loudest praise, your most joyful celebration. Just look at all he has done and all he has made and you will be astonished at what he is. Take for a moment the flight of a hummingbird. Be amazed at the glory of a sunset. Be astounded by the thundering waves that come crashing on shorelines. Be awestruck by the beauty of the moonlight. Admire the intricate color and detail of the flower that blooms. Try to grasp the infinite number of galaxies yet to be discovered. And our God made all of that. He is worthy of our heartiest singing. To sing with gusto. And thank you, Rita, for getting us to sing. Because we need that. Not this... No. He is worthy of your best, your loudest songs. That is the kind of worship God desires. Sincere, joyful celebration from your heart straight to the ears of heaven. We sing for God. He is our audience. We sing for his pleasure. Now, 
the psalmist moves on to mood number two. Look again at verse six. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Psalmist reminds us now, there's a second mood to worship. We will call it reverent homage, sincere, reverent homage. Our spirit, our soul dwells within this bag of bones. We bring this body with us to worship. Just as we bring our body to joyful celebration, we can also bring our body to reverent homage. What do we mean by that? Well, he says, kneel, lay prostrate, lie down before your king. Now, we here in America have never had a king, queen. We don't have royalty in our land. So this sounds so foreign to us, to kneel, to come before another person and bow your head. Yet the Bible says it is good, it is proper to show respect with our bodies kneeling or bowing, even lying face down on the ground. You know, I find it strange about evangelicals. Some of us won't raise our hands and shout because that's what the charismatics do. Okay? Some of us won't kneel because that's what the Catholics do. And yet, in Psalm 95, both of these postures are exhorted to us. Hmm. Obviously, any posture can be faked. Sure but they can also be sincere. Is there room in your worship for genuine homage where you would kneel here in this building? What if nobody else was kneeling? Would you? In genuine respect for the King of kings and Lord of lords, saw, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day we will all bow. Doesn't matter if you know him or not. You will bow. Okay, so if we're going to do it then, why not start now? Why not start here? This is a good place. Wouldn't it be fitting during silent prayer to sometimes kneel? What about a time of sincere personal reflection before communion? Wouldn't that be a good time to kneel? Could you kneel if nobody else was doing it? You see, exuberant praise needs to be balanced with sincere and reverent homage coming from your heart to the king, to the king of kings and lord of lords. That's the kind of worship that God seeks from his children. Finally, in Psalm 95, verse 8, one more section here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they will not know, they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Here the psalmist goes back in history, based on the history of the nation of Israel, back in Exodus 17. We are admonished to learn from their experience, from their bad choices. The Hebrew people complained to Moses and to God about not having water to drink while they were out in the desert. Now, 
God had just delivered them from their bondage, this slavery in Egypt. They had been in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, and God had just sent 10 plagues, humbled those people, the Egyptians, and Pharaoh let them go. And then right after that, after Pharaoh let them go wandering away, they came to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changed his mind, sent his, his uh, army out to get him. He had, Pharaoh had him trapped by the Red Sea. Guess what? God saved them again. Over and over, 10 plagues, and then the rescue by the Red Sea. God showed his mighty power for them. They come to the desert. We need water. And they start grumbling and griping against Moses and God. You see, that attitude of grumbling and complaining continued throughout their journey through the wilderness, right up to the entrance of the promised land. They got to the promised land, and they refused to go in. They did not obey. They hardened their hearts and lost the privilege of entering the rest. Consequence. Behavior. Consequence. Consequence, 40 years of wandering in the desert because they failed to obey, obey God. So, learn from their experience. Behavior. Consequence, you choose to obey or disobey, and you get a consequence. You disobey God, what's going to happen? You're going to get spanked, okay? God is saying to you right now, do not harden your hearts. Well, how does a person harden his heart? Well, it's by ignoring his word. You've just heard his word. You've been here listening all this, this time. You've heard God's word. Are you going to harden your heart or not? You do. What happened to them? Behavior, consequence. Do not harden your hearts, the psalmist says. So if you will prepare your heart for worship, you will allow the word of God to change you every time you hear it. Now imagine you were driving by the church here one day, and you came and drove in and, and out here in the back uh, parking lot, you saw Pastor Rob. And you saw Pastor Rob with a, a bag of seeds, and you saw him go. And you kind of, what's Pastor Rob doing with that bag of seeds? And you come up to him and say, Pastor Rob, what do you do with those, those seeds? Throwing out some more. Oh, I'm planting a garden. <laughs> you try to hold back your, your laughter, and you say, you, you can't get anything to grow out there. It's, it's a paved parking lot. Well, why not? This is a good bag of seed. Oh, you say to him, you got to have some, some ground that's ready to receive the seed. Some soft black dirt might help and dig a few holes. And the seed will then take root. This is the seed. It's good seed. The only question is, how hard is the heart? How hard is your heart today? Okay, so what do we do? Now that you've heard about the heart and the art of worship, number one, prepare for worship on Sunday like the football fanatic. Be preoccupied with God all week long, and then when you show up here, you'll be ready to worship. Secondly, joyful celebration of your creator and, and redeemer. That means to express yourself with praise. Take a big breath and sing with gusto. <laughs> He's worth it. He's worthy. Third, reverently kneel in submission. Be the first, be the only. Choose to kneel in reverence and homage to your king. And finally, be a doer of his word, not just a hearer. And I close with this story. An elderly couple, married for nearly 70 years, 
childhood sweethearts had settled down back in their old neighborhood, celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. They walked down the street to their old school. There they held hands. They found the desk that they had shared, where he carved in it, uh, I love you, Sally. And on their way back home, they were walking hand in hand, and an armored car drove by. And it hit a bump, and out of the armored car fell a, a bag of money. Sally looks over at it, and she looks at her husband, and Sally reaches down, picks it up. Bag of money. And she carries it on home. There she counts the money. It's $50,000. Husband says, oh, we've got to take it back. Oh, she says, finders keepers. (laughs) So she puts the money back in a bag and hides it up in the attic. Well, sure enough, the next day, two FBI men are going door to door through the neighborhood looking for the money. And they show up at their home. And they say, pardon me, but did either of you find any money that fell out of an armored car here yesterday? She says, oh, no. Husband says, She's lying. She hid it up in the attic. She says, don't believe him. He's getting senile. The agents sit down with the man and began to question him. One says, well, tell us the story from the beginning. The old man says, well, Sally and I were walking home from school yesterday. And one of the FBI agents looks at the other and says, I think we're done here. Can people believe your words? Do you live in such a way that no matter what, they would say, I believe him, I believe her, because their life matches their words. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to be cheerful doers. In Jesus' name, amen.